Inspired by my own journey with mental health, I founded Girls Talk, our own safe space where we share, listen, and support each other. So get cozy and join me, Adjoa Burr, for some much-needed Girls Talk. Hello, my lovely listeners. Welcome to season four of the Girls Talk podcast. I'm so excited to have all sorts of insanely fascinating Girls Talk this season. And I'm even more excited to kick it off with my friend, Z-Way. You always have a call, but my ears have popped. <laughs> oh, are you in high altitude? Yeah, and, and the mountains. <laughs> I'm reaching you from the high mountains. Oh, I can't wait to see you in Paris. I know, literally three days. With yeah, Usher. very, very soon. I love that it was then announced that he was going to be headlining the Super Bowl. It's going to be so fun because I remember that was the soundtrack to my middle school. So I'm beyond excited. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I bet you're beyond busy right now. Thank you for having me. I'm never too busy for you. You are our first guest of season four of the Girls Talk podcast. So very, very beyond excited about that. I'm trying to think where we first met. I think we we met through M not that long ago. Vanity, the first Vanity Fair. And we like, exactly. at first we were like, wait, who is this woman? And then we were like, wait, I love this woman. And it was a really fun night. And then we did a second Pete the next year. I know. We did sniff each other out, didn't we? And then I felt like it was a kind of, it blossomed quite quickly after that. Well, because, you know, Ghanaian women, Nigerian women were supposed to be at war, but we are the bridge between two brilliant nations. <laughs> so this, I mean, amongst other things, this podcast could be that branch for many exactly. others to start kind of fulfilling that friendship. I want to go to Ghana for Christmas. And then obviously we have to go to Nigeria for Christmas the following year. Oh my God, I forgot to tell you. I was going to tell you in Paris, I'm going to Nigeria in November. For what? For a work, for a job. Oh God, I'm jealous. I've never worked there. That's so cool. Can't you come? Be so fun. I'll ask my agent. I'll be like, any job in Nigeria? I want to be on it. Stat. <laughs> They'll be like, who are you? <laughs> Why are you calling us? <laughs> so your book of essays, Black Friend, is yes. available in exactly a week. So my question is, is we do get to see a different side of you in the book. I think I've been, because we've had a friendship, a blossoming friendship before this book, I've definitely been able and privileged enough to see parts of you the other side of your life might not get to see. But what inspired you to write a series of essays that shows a different side of yourself? You talk a lot about that, like vulnerability and how uncomfortable it is, but you've also been, like you said in the book, uncomfortable for quite a lot of your life. Yeah. What inspired me? I'm a professional writer. I started as a writer. I knew I always wanted to write a book and I wasn't interested in writing a memoir because I don't think I've lived enough. And an essay mm. is sort of that great in-between point in nonfiction, which is where I really enjoy to live. And so I just have infinite amounts of stories and my mind is sort of encyclopedic. It started kind of half and half, like there's a lot of things from history that are in the essay, as you can read, but I also would relate them almost narcissistically to my personal life. And so it was just this like organic marriage that happened over the course of three years at writing that book. Mm -hmm. We have a few things in common, but I think first and foremost is our names. 
are names that go align with a Western linguistic hit like Smith or Johnson, which is what you quote. Can you talk about why it was important to address the way people treat your name in the book? I mean, I've got so many anecdotes. So that one really like spoke to me in a lot of ways. I love that. Also, we're A and Z, which is interesting. Yeah. So we're on like the diametrically opposed and the alphabetical scale. Now, why was it important? Because that is every interaction, you know this, every single interaction I've ever had since I could speak and introduce myself has started with this confusion or intrigue around my identity, specifically with my name. And so... That was why I started with that because it's the first thing we have to get out of the way is like, my name is Z-Way and this is what it means. And this has come up in every single place I've ever existed for better or for worse. And I loved how you talked about it was kind of once you have explained what your name means or made it up, like you said, it's like, it's a letdown because my name means born on a Monday. So when people ask that, I don't know what they're expecting. Oh, really? expecting uh, me to say like, yeah. <laughs> Are they expecting me to say it means like kind of something really profound and otherworldly, but instead I say it means born on a Monday, which is quite mundane, quite exciting, but... I love that. Which is crazy, but it always feels like it's a letdown when you actually explain to people what your name means, because I think they were expecting something far more kind of... Exotic. Exotic. Exotic, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why it's so funny for me to lie about the meaning of my name and then tell the truth. And I've only actually told the truth to maybe one or two people. And they were so heartbroken that I promised myself I will never, ever be honest when confronted with this in person again, because I could not take the emotional labor of having to console them about the meaning that they asked for. And my name for your audience, my name famously means when I was born, my father was away. <laughs> he was not present famously. Or at least that's what my mother told me. Yeah. I mean, people don't even know how to spell mine, right? Do you know what I mean? Of all the years mm-hmm. that I've worked with certain clients or specific people, I might as well start a tally when I turn up to a particular event or get an invite to something to see whether someone spelt it correctly. And I'm like, by this point, can you not just spell it right? <laughs> and it's hard to not take it as like disrespect because for me, at least, it's my name. How could you not? How could you invite me to a space and not know my name, not know how to say my name? But then every person I interact with is different. Some people really just don't care. And others, when I tell them or when they read it, it like glosses over them. So it's like individual and how people react to it. But yeah, it's, a complex I've had for a long time. I was, my parents almost named me Kelly. And for a really long time, I like wish that I could have been named Kelly. Like my life would have been so much easier. I would have had the same namesake as Miss Kelly Rowland, but they did not name me that. I think my mom wanted to name me Daisy. Daisy? <laughs> Imagine. I Daisy like and Kelly. It's just different. Daisy and Kelly. Well, we wouldn't be the icons that we are. Yeah, it would be so different. No, that's true. It'd be easy. It'd be easy for everyone. We might as well keep everyone on their toes. What advice or word of wisdom would you give to anyone experiencing like a similar microaggression due to their name? Ooh, I think I don't even know because I still experience this. 
I mean, I got misnamed on a Jumbotron where I was invited to the game. I've been misnamed in magazines that I'd already appeared in. Exactly, right? Like so someone I else's picture. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh yes. I get mistaken for Amanda Gorman a lot, which I find flattering because oh. she's so young. But yeah, I don't even have any advice about, there's nothing to change, but I think how you process that information is such a wonderful tool. And so for me, I use this, the misnomer to write this essay about, about identity and finding my place and, or creating a place of my own. And that's really, really important to me. But it's a lifelong process. Mm -hmm. So talking of identity, you talk a lot in the book about being a first-generation immigrant of Nigerian parents. How do you think straddling two cultures shaped the person you are today? I think it really solidified that no POV is the correct POV. And mm. so I grew up in a super deeply Nigerian household. And so you're taught this is the way that the world works. And then you leave your house to go to school, to go to the market, whatever. And you're also told this is the way the world works. And by having the dual identity of being like born in the United States, American girl through and through, and then also having the Nigerian element to me, I'm able to see the ways in which the cultures clash and the cultures mesh. And that taught me so much about perspective. And I love what you talk about. I mean, it's very millennial to be friends with your parents. There's a bit in your book, I'm not going to like mess it up, but like my mum and dad, especially my dad was always like, you know, I'm your father. I'm not one of your friends. Yeah. Your little friends in the streets. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's something that I have worked through mm. because I am at peace with this. It's like, yeah, my relationship to my parents is formal. They are very formal. That's how they were related to their parents as well. So to try to change several generations of culture, I think is like, is a futile task, but I don't necessarily think that that difference between me and the American families you see on TV, like Full House or Sister, Sister. I don't think that that's a negative thing. I just think it's a difference in cultures. Did you used to think it was a negative thing? I think I was always envious of either my friends or like people on TV where I'd be like, oh, I wish I could, you know, talk to my mom about girl things, right? That's something that you see in American culture and you feel you feel like, oh, this is something that's strange about myself. But I am at peace with this. Like, I work through this in therapy. Mm -hmm. And it's interestingly enough, my therapist is an American woman. Some of the advice she gives, I find to be applicable. And others, I'm like, oh, there's really no change. You can't really change your parents or adults. Mm -hmm. Like, they're actually more, they're bigger adults than we are. Even though the older they get, the more like infantile, because we'd be start to take care of our parents. But that's just the way that things are. And I think instead of trying to change a square into a circle, you have to accept that like the square is perfectly, it's perfect the way it is. I know a hundred percent. I mean, it was something that I worked through in like kind of my early years of therapy and it was a great kind of, it was revolutionary when I realized that my parents just like me were human and I had to kind of accept them for the way that they were. And just because I was kind of transcending and changing and growing because I'm younger didn't mean that they had to kind yeah. of change every mannerism and the way they kind of navigated the world. It formed a better relationship, you know? 
Totally. I think acceptance is important. I think acceptance is paramount to happiness. <laughs> Honestly, there are some things that you can change and there are some things you have to walk away from and there are other things you have to accept for as they are. Yeah, I loved your parents not letting you go for sleepovers because my dad was always like, why would you go for a sleepover? You have a bed yeah. you have a home. Why would you go and stay at someone else's house? I know. And I'd be like, because I want to. But as an adult, I'm like, you know, maybe sleepovers are bad. Like, I know, but what happens is like, like when you get older, my friends like, oh, I'll just come and sleep over. And I'm like, do you know what? I never did them. So now I couldn't think of anything worse than sleeping over at someone's house without my pajamas and my toothbrush and my, and my things. Oh, a hundred percent. No, I need my things. I love my things. I love my bed. I love the environments that I've created for myself. So I'm actually team parents on that one. I'm team immigrant. <laughs> I get yeah. it. It was always so embarrassing though. Like the very few times I did, there were particular families where I was allowed to stay the night and they were usually friends of mm. my parents. So it was like, might as well be in family. But if we were going to do anything like go to the park, like the girls were going to go to the park or we were going to go to the cinema, I would always have to call my dad up to ask his permission, even though why would he actually even know if I went to the park? He's not there. Yeah. And I call him up and he'd be like, no, like, why would you do that? We're not there. You're not going to do that. And it'd be like a source of <laughs> no like park? high oh embarrassment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can relate. It's definitely embarrassing to make the call, make the ask and then get up and be like, damn, I'm not allowed. <laughs> like no, it doesn't exactly. feel good. But also, can I tell you that I had a very structured upbringing and it is the source of a lot of my success. Oh, one, if I was with you, I'd high five you on that one. Honestly. Seriously. I mean, my parents, I've got to thank them both, but my dad, wow. Like people said that we were like the best trained house guests you have ever had in your life. The way we turn up at people's houses and we just literally like, he'd just look at us and we'd fucking like clear the table. Our manners were like immaculate. Do you know what I mean? A hundred percent. I mean, that's free, man. Do you know what I mean? Like that is literally the base of like the way that I can like kind of navigate this fucking mental planet. Do you know what I mean? That keeps me afloat always. Yeah. And I have his like strict, but brilliant upbringing to thank for that. You know? A hundred percent. Similarly, like my parents would always get compliments about how quiet we were at like the tables at restaurants. They'd be like, your kids are so well behaved mm. because we'd be like, like <laughs> literally like the kids from the shining. <laughs> Again, it's like really good skills you use. It makes you into an adult really quickly. So I don't think I yeah. even know how to interact with the like wild element of myself. Like I really have never experienced that. Did you ever have a wild moment? Yeah, I probably rebelled, but not even remotely close to what I could have done. I was raised so deeply like religious that even smoking mm. a cigarette, I was like, oh no, I'm gonna go to hell. <laughs> so <laughs> I wouldn't say I got the full wild child moment, but I'm alive. So I think it's okay. Yeah. 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 But I was also thinking about how similarly we both had strict upbringings and we both went to boarding school. Yeah. It's like a strict, it's like a authoritarian almost in like the rules. Was your boarding school strict? Yeah, for sure. Are there boarding schools that aren't strict? Uh, in England, there are, yeah. Oh, wow. Cool. There are some that kind of fuel like drug addiction and like idleness. <gasps> wow. Wow. <laughs> Not Damn. naming any names. Anyway, shade, shade, shade. No names, no names. But what I'm saying <laughs> is like, my boarding school is very strict, but 
there was something to say. I think my parents sent me there because they thought that I was one, not going to be in London. I wasn't going to be like, have the kind of cosmopolitan city to kind of fucking mess around with. Yeah. So they sent me to boarding school for many other reasons, but that I think was one of the main ones. But actually, because I was away from my parents, I was able to get around those teachers. Yeah. I probably would have been more (laughs) well-behaved at home. I probably would have been more well behaved at home as well because boarding school, you realize you're just like, oh, wait, people are so different. The world isn't this according to my parents. But then also, I had this like respect for authority that is hard to shake. So who knows? Yeah, you have that, but I need to have that a bit. <laughs> yeah, I need to have that probably a bit more. Maybe I rebelled because of the authority and being told that I couldn't wear like a particular shade of navy blue. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I feel like we're on the journey we're on and that's the journey we're on. So Mm -hmm. it all works out or it doesn't. So talking of boarding school, and I'm sure there have been many predominantly white spaces that you have had to navigate. And you talk in the book about appropriation versus appreciation. Oh, yes. How did you interpret appropriation versus appreciation from the people you were surrounded by? I don't know. It's like pornography. You know it when you see it. It's really hard to define because we live in the era of like globalization. So the idea that culture, food, language, fashion couldn't cross borders is sort of impossible. But then certainly you look at the way people, certain people profit off of Mm. others' culture and then that becomes appropriation, right? I remember really specifically the way which in which women were like shamed for having cornrows. Yeah, that's what my example was going to be like. Like, yeah. I hated myself because of my cornrows. I hated it. I was yeah. like, oh my gosh, I look, I, I didn't think it looked good. I just had like really pejorative feelings towards it. And then obviously you look at a runway, you look at any magazine, you'll see, you know, women with blonde hair and cornrows and like Manolo Blahnik Timberlands. And that's like the wave. And part of it makes it, like it normalizes that, but also is it fair? I don't know. But maybe is that where it stems from is when we're talking about appropriation versus appreciation, is it the trigger that fuels us? Like when I see someone celebrated for cornrows and wearing a particular style, when I was shamed and insecure about my braids, is that where it taps in? Is that where I'm like, like you said, it's just not fair that I went through that period of- Yeah, is it fair? Us went through that period of time where we didn't have silky, you know, well, I did for a bit, but that was, you know, my hair fell out. So that's another story. Yeah, my hair fell um, out. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, we didn't have silky locks. So is it that, is that yeah. what it's about? It's just like, it's unfair. It is unfair. Yeah. It is unfair. It's unfair that we were children and we were shamed for things that are clearly fashion forward that we were ahead of our time with. Trendsetters. We're trendsetters. Trendsetters. Trendsetters, really. Just, you know, using our culture in a way that paid homage. Yeah, it's, it is unfair. What do you do with that? There's a particular part in the book where you talk about your awakening. I remember kind of, this was probably after George Floyd, but I was speaking to a friend of mine in Berlin And he was kind of like heartbroken as many of us were. And I was like, you know, how are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And he was like, you know, what I find really difficult is that 
there's this double heartache sometimes. It's like, it's not only just the surroundings, but it's also because when I talk to particular friends of mine, it's a second heartbreak because I see how their lack of understanding, how little they understand about what I'm going through. And there's a bit in your book where you talk about the disconnect between your peers' interpretation and how you realize that you both saw things so differently. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what my question is, but it's just, I feel like that is a constant reckoning. I felt that. I had that moment during the Trayvon Martin. It wasn't even his trial, the George Zimmerman trial, really. I just had no idea what I didn't know about the Mm. country I was born and raised in. And it was really eye-opening for me. And it was, I found it to be so unsettling and surreal and disturbing. But yeah, that was wild. And I'm sure a lot of people had similar feelings. And it came at the expense of a child. I find that to be the most tragic. One of the people you talk about in the book is someone who you knew like quite a long time ago, but did this happen in your kind of immediate kind of friend group or people you knew or was this kind of something that felt quite distant? It did not feel distant. It felt really, really close. I'm from New England, right? So New England, you're taught that the Civil War was us versus them. We're the good guys. Go Union. Go Abraham Lincoln. Gang, gang, gang. Racism out. <laughs> and and then you realize that there's a bigger, deeper ocean in between, between just like Confederate Union. And so it was really hard for me because people I knew to be good, thoughtful, kind people had this perspective that I thought was objectively wrong. And how do you contend with that? Do you just cut all those people out of your life? Do you try to like teach them at the expense of your own mental health? So that was, it was something that I really had to work through what that meant to me. What did you do? Or did it kind of change dependent on the individual? I think it changed over time. Initially, I was so angry and I like blocked everyone. (laughs) And then you can't can't block, you you cannot block every person you've ever met if they hold opinions that you find to be wrong. That's probably where a lot of like the interview style came from was the idea that if I am born of the notion that Nigerian perspectives are valuable and American perspectives are equally valuable. And I live at the nexus of this perspective growing up as a first generation Nigerian American, then I have to accept that there are people in this world that do not share my same opinions on Mm. politics and gender and race and class and whatever. And so as a result, I have to accept this reality and process it in my own way. But that took a lot a long, long journey for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one of my favorite essays is Imposter Syndrome. Really? Yeah, I loved it. Loved it, loved it, loved it. You talk of seeking external validation. So I'm going to steal this question from Maya Angelou. How do you cope with success? And also, how do you cope with despair? I think... It's so easy to let rejection get the better of you. And it's also kind of 
similarly like easy to let I suppose the validation of others kind of sweep you away and excite you so how do you kind of cope with both of those things I don't really let myself feel either high, high or low, low. Mm. Like I am constantly checking in with myself about what I actually want. But yeah, I think that's how I cope with success is I'm like, wow, this is nice. But I really don't let myself get into the smelling my own fumes. Like I really can't. And similarly, when people like hated my stuff, I'd just be like, well, damn, like, I guess they're wrong. And just keep on like working through it. Because you you can't get too attached because one, people don't know what they're talking about. And then two, it's a moving goalpost. So you have to have vision. Exactly. And I think I loved what you said there. It's, I feel like I'm in a great place right now because I'm content. It is dangerous yeah. for me to be too low or too high. Like it's not a great place, either one of those things. So just a medium, mediocre content is like fantastic. Do you know what I mean? Not too overexcited and not too fucking like stressed out. Oh, absolutely. Is like perfection, you know? No, absolutely. You just have to kind of take it as like work and as art. And it has to fulfill you for something a little deeper than like cultural praise because that's not sustainable. No, we've talked personally about, and I've been thinking a lot about it since you said about glamorizing kind of hard work. For some reason, it really stuck with me and has kind of floated with me since, since we spoke about it. For you though, as someone who has been kind of bred to work hard and have worked hard for so long, I think I try and check in with myself about when enough is enough, because I think I am like, programmed to be like highly ambitious and like kind of like I've got to fucking like get to the top of what do you know what I mean yeah when is enough enough I don't know, I don't know. this sounds like quite a prolific question is it a swimming pool maybe it's a pj yeah exactly I don't know <laughs> right because we're fed in different ways like we're fed artistically we're fed yeah. financially we're fed like emotionally in relationships so the glass is full in each of those different buckets, so to speak. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. The golden hour apple devoured has seeds. Like it's an endless pursuit. And that's something that I definitely suffer from like wanting to be successful. And then even when I gain these goalposts, I don't even feel them. Like I really don't like process them. I'm I'm like, just another goalpost, like keep going. Mm. So I can't say I have an answer, but I really did relate to James Bond when he's a quote about how he doesn't dream of labor. That's a very Gen Z mentality and shout out to them. They have great boundaries. Yeah. I don't know when enough is enough. I'm sort of finding that. Yeah. If I ever find it. Yeah. Let me know when you do. Yeah, exactly. You know, there were moments the book made me very emotional, but obviously it made me scream with laughter in very kind of inappropriate places. But in your view, what does the role of comedy and satire play in facilitating conversations about race, gender, and social justice? Oh, that's a great question. What's interesting is that someone recently posted about me and they wrote something along the lines of how, you know, 
I use comedy to have really deep conversations. And I really wish I could say it was so intentional. It's more Mm. of like, this is my deflection tool I've been using all my life because I've been forced to have these conversations against my will. So I've always turned it into a joke. But that's just how I process trauma. Like, I think life is a joke. But if I wanted to give you a much better answer than that, it would be that if you're going to have medicine, you want to have a little sugar. And so it's like, who wants to learn? Not me, but I'll learn if it's, <laughs> if it's, if I'm being deceived into learning, if I'm being tricked, but it's really like me, like unpacking trauma. <laughs> what do you hope people who look like us and don't look like us take away from reading Black Friend? My f- goal, first and foremost, honestly, is to make people laugh. I think that that is my priority and it's the most important part. And then after that, I think it is to have people connect with any one of the nine personalities I show throughout that book, right? Yeah. Because I offer different versions of myself that complete the whole self. And you may not be able to relate to the name part. Maybe your name is Kelly. You may not be able to relate to the imposter syndrome part, but hopefully you can connect about wiki feet or you can connect about affirmative action, or you can connect about any number of stories that I offer in this book of essays. I love that. Thank you so much, Zee. I mean, I literally, I could like go on and on and on and on and on. Oh, thank you. I really absolutely love you. We have a little fun question called Safe Spaces that we'd love for you to participate in. It's a safe space. At Girls Talk, we create safe spaces online and in real life. And the podcast is no different. So... Ziwe, tell us, what's your go-to excuse for getting out of plans? Um, COVID, but I think I've had <laughs> COVID 17 times this month. <laughs> oh, really? One time I told an old employer that I got salmonella because I undercooked chicken, which was a great excuse because no one ever asked follow-ups, but it was embarrassing because they're like, how did you undercook chicken? And I know how to cook chicken. I just was lying. So salmonella or COVID. Respect. <laughs> Or I tell the truth and say, I say I don't want to go outside. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it, you, you, like, ah. I have a friend, she starts kind of putting the feelers out like a few days in advance. I respect that. I mean, I can always tell that she wants to cancel, but I respect that she starts kind of like <laughs> putting out the feelers like three days before the actual kind of lunch or dinner. I think the reason I never get offended by people canceling on me is because I, I was always kind of waiting for... I was hoping that they would cancel before I did. Fingers crossed. I'm like, please don't make me do anything. I love to not do nothing. Yeah. (laughs) I feel that. Oh, I love you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. you, Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure. I hope you all enjoyed this as much as I did. And as always, mad, mad, mad amounts of love. A massive thanks to my dear friend Z-Way for being our first guest of season four. You can buy Black Friend at all major book retailers on Tuesday, October the 17th. Now, we want to hear from you. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so, so happy to be back. Bye for now. We may have stopped talking, but that doesn't mean you have to. Talk to us on our Instagram at Girls Talk. 
or send us your poetry, essays, stories, artwork, or anything else you want to share at girlstalk.com. This week's podcast was produced by Girls Talk and Wicked Child Studio. Original music composed by Mikey Long. Mad, mad, mad love to Joe Malone London for their generous support of the podcast. And as always, we are always here and we're always listening. I'm Adjoa Boa and this was the Girls Talk podcast. <laughs>